0: Welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. My special guest today is Carl Benjamin. Carl, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of questions if I may and talk to you a little bit about why you're, you're wildly popular. You, you, you have over a million or almost a million subscribers on YouTube.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You are probably seen each week on a screen in the UK by more people than would see, I don't know, Emily Makeless or, or, or Jon Snow or some of those household names. Um, why, why do you account for this? Why do you think you're so
1: wildly popular? I think, um, I think it's not very hard to get information these days. The, the trouble is getting information from someone who has um, a particular political bias and interest in a certain direction. And I'm not connected to the machinery of Westminster or the uh, the bubble surrounding it with the media, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm I'm speaking from a perspective of a regular person. I'm speaking mm-hmm. from the perspective of the man in his living room who just happened to make it big, because that's what's happened. Um, I'm. I don't do any sponsored work or anything like that. All of the money I get is comes directly from my channel or from people watching it in donations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my interests very much lie with my audience, and they're very much just regular folk. And I think that that's one of the things that appeals about my channel. And I mean, I would like to say that it's because of the uh, the the cutting nature of my political commentary, but I, I think it's I think it's more to do with the fact that I'm not condescending to my audience and I'm not telling them they're wrong for having. <laughs> Their own opinions.
0: Do you think part of it is, as well as a reflection on, on you and, and what you bring to your broadcasts, also a, a, about the state of the establishment media? Mm. I mean, I I was in active politics for 15 years, yeah. and I was really struck by the clubbiness, uh, the group think that you find there. Nice. And there are certain sort of, I would call them fallacies, which are shared by Members of the mainstream broadcasting community, and if you don't subscribe to those fallacies, or indeed if you say things that challenge those fallacies, you are you are persona non grata. You are beyond the pale. You're excluded. Yeah. And yet, when I watch you on YouTube, I hear you talking about things and articulating points of view and expressing ideas that
1: are just completely verboten in the mainstream media. That that makes me sound a lot more radical than I am. <laughs> uh, it's. The the, the the problem with the media is is political correctness. It's mm-hmm. I mean to, to, to suggest you're going to have a politically correct media suggests that there is one form of correct politics. And the media are all subscribe to a kind of neoliberal progressive global view. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very, very, very concerned with remaining in the European Union. They overwhelmingly hate yeah. Brexit. They are very anti-Trump. They're very anti-populist. One could essentially describe them as globalist elites. Um, I'm obviously the complete opposite of that. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I mean, I, I jotted down on my notes in front of me three or four establishment fallacies. Yeah. And I, I think, for me, the, the, the first one and the biggest one is the fallacy of, of what I call cultural relativism. Mm-hmm. And it's the sort of root of political correctness and, and wokeness. That, and it, it's this idea that all cultures are the same mm-hmm. and there's no such thing as cultural superiority. And if you accept that, first of all, it's impossible for you to improve your culture because if all cultures are the same, yeah. then how can you get any better? Yeah. The second fallacy is that you can somehow make people completely interchangeable. You can allow one group of people to settle in large numbers in another country, make zero effort, whatever, to integrate or assimilate, and there won't be any problems. And I, you know, I, I think we're beginning to realise that, that that simply ain't so. Um, mm-hmm. But also it means that if you're a cultural relativist, you, you, you can't safeguard what it is that works in your culture. It could be Correct. that your culture is very good at producing science or, yeah. or scientists or technological advancements. Yeah. If you're a cultural relativist, you, you can't you can't ultimately do that.
1: What's interesting is the, the people who would prescribe this kind of worldview come from a particular kind of culture themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a, a sort of shared metropolitan culture, the, the globalist elite culture. I don't have a better term for it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a kind of shared metropolitan culture, and these people are very noticeable when they leave this sort of area. So if, if you were to take a BBC journalist and send them to Yorkshire, you would know who the BBC journalist was, despite the fact that they both apparently came from the same country, and apparently all cultures are essentially the same. Um, the, ironically, the people who think that there are no differences between cultures come from a different culture mm-hmm. that has developed because of the international nature of politics. Now, um, I find it very interesting how the the, the I mean the, the the term cultural relativist is actually strangely a, somewhat of a misnomer because all cultures are relative to one another, and there you indeed you know there are obviously differences, and if you have preferences for one type of culture over another, then well, A, you're called a racist, which is strange, but B, it it automatically implies that there are there are differences and you can't escape that. And it's kind of it's it's the it's the it's the the end the, the end goal of the enlightenment i think was to create a kind of universal human uh, value system that would essentially become a layer across the entire world to get rid of the inferior past that wasn't created from reason and create a new new order that, that is scientific uh, done through modern philosophy and reason and will create the world of perfect freedom mm-hmm. the, the ultimate freedom because that's even the, the the communists and the fascists, they will still appeal to freedom, as the goal of what they're trying to do. Um, obviously, it doesn't work and ends in horrific tyranny. But it's it's interesting how they think that they can construct a kind of perfect culture and a perfect way of doing things. But what this does, and David Sarnoff uh, pointed this out at the end of his podcast with Brendan O'Neill, but it was at the very end. It's a real shame because it was the most interesting part of it. Um, the the application of reason to things that are created before reason existed, without reason, is destructive, of course. You apply to any religion, any nation, state, you know, and this is something I've I've noticed very, um, very, has come to the fore in the past few years when discussing the concept of English. I I was having conversations with lots of people who are very much vociferous opponents of people like Tommy Robinson, and they would tell me that there is no such ethnic group as the English. They would say, well, these are German and other European migrants who came over 1,500 years ago, They're, you know, the, the chicken tikka masalas from India, things like this, and therefore there isn't an ethnic group called the English. Well, by this standard, you can deconstruct any ethnic group, because for some reason they make appeals to DNA, but that's not what we define an ethnic group as. An ethnic group is a self-narrative, a self-identification, how one recognises the other and how the other recognises the one, and through a shared mean, it's story. Self-defining. It's self-defining. Yeah, well, Absolutely. It's entirely based on self-definition. So, I mean, if all cultures are equal and you're allowed to self-define as you wish, then you can't ever say an ethnic group doesn't exist. And yet that's the position we've come to. Um, but that's the application of reason to the ethnic group of the English. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, you can apply this to anything else and you can easily destroy it. I was interested, you,
0: you mentioned the Enlightenment. Mm. I would say that one of the key liberating things about the Enlightenment was that up, up until the Enlightenment, there was an assumption that anything that needed to be known was known. It was found in the Bible yeah. or the... Torah or the Divan Quran or whatever. Yeah. The Enlightenment comes along and it brings with it a humility. You suddenly realise that actually you know more than your grandparents and your grandchildren will hopefully, all being well, know more about the world than you. Mm. Not everything that is to be known is yet known. I wonder if the second fallacy of the cultural elites in, in the West is that actually, despite thinking of themselves as an mm-hmm. They actually often believe that social science is infallible. That if you're an economist, yeah. you know everything about economics. If you're a sociologist yeah. or a criminologist, you know everything about society and crime. And in fact, a lot of them turn out to be just books
1: Well, I think this is the, the, the great lesson of the 20th century, is that uh, people who say that they have a plan for society probably don't understand society. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it, 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 the more power you give someone, the more, heart, the, the more potential for harm there is. Uh, this 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 is why, in fact, I'm am a liberal. I actually genuinely believe in the sort of uh, separation of powers and decentralisation of power, because then the the amount of damage you do trying to enact your perfect vision of society is naturally mitigated mm-hmm. by the constraints on your ability to act. Um, and the, this this is this is the the terrible thing about science. I mean, you know, Marxism and fascism consider themselves to be scientific philosophies, which is a, a terrible appeal because science is constantly coming up with new results because none of it's settled. The idea that there's a settled science. Well, Richard a... Feynman
0: says science is a belief in in, in experts getting things wrong. What's that <laughs> effect? Well,
1: yeah. yeah, it's 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 a process, not an end result. And so this kind of scientism, the the you know the, the deification of, and the religi- religiosity that's The the extinction rebellion protesters outside are kind of appealing. You can probably hear them in the background. Uh, Absolutely, and I mean we've we've heard we've heard that the Earth is going to end. The the world's going to end in twelve years. Well, that's not true. And and I I I (laughs) I wonder. Do do you you think any of these rebellion protester people have pensions? I mean, presumably the world's going to end in twelve years. I think they're currently on pensions. (laughs) Yes, but yeah, yes. I I the. The problem is, all of these predictions have always been wrong. Yeah, every climate prediction going back the last 50 years has just been wrong. I mean, at the moment we should be Acid in a,
0: rain in the 80s. We yeah.
1: we should be in a famine, uh, in in the middle of an ice age, mm. according to the predictions from the 70s. Uh, Al Gore in the early 2000s was predicting that at the moment there would be zero ice on the North Pole. This is just not true. Um, I'm not I'm not in any way knowledgeable about the science, but you can just look at their previous predictions, and I think they're trying to claim mastery over systems that are so complicated, they they are essentially being arrogant. Absolutely not social just arrogance. weather systems and climate no, systems. Political but economic systems, systems, and political systems, systems and social systems yeah. as well. Yeah. Um the, the I mean if you look at the phenomenal arrogance of the Blair government thinking that they could create a, a diverse society that would be harmonious and progressive and you know, the, the sort of um, the instantiation of John Lennon's imagine uh, Sarah Champion probably has a few things to say about that. And yeah. and I completely agree with David Starkey when he talks about the alien nature of the Supreme Court and all of the other sort of constitutional reforms Blair did. Mm. It, it was remarkable, high-handed arrogance to think that you could take a system that had evolved over a thousand years and had so many different hands, uh, it, it, like slowly, empirically putting it together mm. and conceptually come in with a, an idea and say, you know what? I know better. Mm. Uh, I don't think he does, and I don't think any of us do, really. And I think it is tremendous arrogance to say that mm. actually I can, I can, I can order the world myself. Another example
0: of this, I would say, is to do with the the elites' views about about gender. Um, you know, for most of human history, yeah. it's been understood that there are essentially two genders. Yes, science has taught us that there are. Uh, female gender, XX chromosomes, uh, male gender, XY chromosomes. Mm. And most societies have assumed in one form or another differences between male and female. Sometimes that difference was crass inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find extraordinary now is that people in the name of equality are pretending that actually the differences between the genders are purely cosmetic. And, and you know, we're getting yeah. into all sorts of problems because of this.
1: Yeah, the, the the current radical gender ideology is actually not as new as you think. For example, there was a transgender Roman emperor called Elagabalus. Really, uh, he didn't last very long because the Romans were very conservative. Um, but he, there, there was actually, yeah, it's it's not. Was this in the late empire? It, it was in the late empire. Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, it's it's not a tremendously new innovation. Uh, I mean, what. One of the, I can't remember the chap's name, but there was a a Jewish uh, social scientist in Weimar, Germany, who coined the term transsexual, and the Nazis burned all of his books on sexual studies, because a a lot of what they'll say is actually grounded in some form of reality. For example, there are intersex people, there are people who... Who have um, you know naturally more feminine uh, bodies and things like this you know rather uh, even though they're biologically male, so there is a spectrum there, there, there is, and there there is the the idea of agenda is what they would call a social construct so it's a it's a, a set of behavior a pattern of behaviors that are known to to you know the, the two groups of male and female that form a kind of construct that mm. is the way that society organizes courtship now. This is very important because, obviously, we need courtship for our societies to continue. And so, if you think about the, just the, the, the again, the, the dramatic arrogance of thinking that you can seek to attack or deconstruct the way that society maintains itself generationally, mm-hmm. and not come into massive problems slightly further down the road, is staggering. Mm-hmm. I, I mean. They're, at the moment, millennials are overwhelmingly um, friendless, they don't have sex, they don't form relationships, they're anti-children, and they think that people should care about their futures. You don't have a future. You you are going to be the last of your line and no one will care. And then when we get into the whole transgender issues, I mean, the the, the process is self-castration. So that's the end of that line as well. So why would... The, the Extinction Rebellion protesters outside are complaining about, oh, we want to make the climate safe for seven generations. We're not going to have seven generations if we carry on like this. Mm-hmm. It's going to require actually a commitment to the traditional gender roles do of you, men and women. Do you think birth rates have fallen because of this in the West? I think there are many reasons that birth rates are falling in the West, but this is certainly not helping them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a general anti... Um, I, I actually think it's probably something to do with the the effect of the mouse utopia experiment. Are you familiar with this? No. Right. I, I, I wish I'd I wish I'd prepared some notes. I didn't realize I'd get <laughs> onto it. But in in the uh, in the sixties and seventies, there was a scientist who decided what he would do is create a, a finite amount of space and introduce x amount of families of mice, and then just give them all of the food they'll ever need and see how their society, their little society, carries on. And after a few generations, it didn't take long for them to fill the fill the uh, pen. Um, But then the society started breaking down because there was just no need for mice to actually breed. There was no need for them to take care of their their offspring. And so you ended up with a generation of mice that he called the perfect ones. They were constantly obsessed with themselves. They would sit there preening and grooming and they would just sit on their own. They wouldn't interact with the other mice. They wouldn't breed. And the ones that did breed didn't look after their, their offspring. And eventually the entire thing collapsed because they just didn't carry on. And I've been thinking about this quite a lot because it occurs to me that many of the relationships that we have are there by necessity. You need human contact, you know, you need to have friends, you need a family. It evolved
0: for a survival.
1: Exactly, second. Exactly. you know, you, you need to, to, you know, rely on your boss for money. You need these things. And if we liberate people from these needs, then every time, every, everything becomes more of an offence. So if, you know, if, if I don't need friends because I have validation from social media constantly, then if one of my real life friends offends me, I might never speak to them again and just get all the validation I need from social media because I don't need their validation anymore. So we we inevitably become atomized. the more problems we overcome and the more safe and secure our society becomes. Because, I mean, think of, like, the the sort of familial, tribal structures. Mm -hmm. This came from a a dire need for safety, security, and and happiness and health. But we, we have surpassed these now, at least for the most part. And so our society is becoming increasingly atomized. So... Every relationship, like a, a, a marriage, used to be something you had to work at because it was difficult to get out of it, and it was difficult to exist outside of the marriage. But now you can just—well, it, it, it doesn't becomes matter. a lifestyle it, choice. It, exactly, it becomes a lifestyle choice. So the, the the smallest infraction could be caused for divorce, and suddenly you've got uh, you've got a, a family unit that splits apart, which is bad for the children that were produced by that family unit. But it doesn't matter mm-hmm. because we've moved into a, a mode where it's. More about self-care. How, how much do you
0: think birth rates are to do with optimism versus pessimism? I mean, if, mm. if you've got a society... You know, I, I, I grew up in Central Africa in the 1970s and 80s, right. and there's a phenomenally high birth rate in Uganda at the moment. And yet people are incredibly optimistic. And I think they're optimistic for good reason, because they know that the past was pretty grim. They yeah. <laughs> had a military yeah. dictator and genocide and all the rest of it. Yeah. The world is getting better... And I, I wonder if because people have confidence in the future, they have large families. And boy, do they have large families in, in, in Uganda. I bet they do. Yeah. Whereas in the West, where life has been actually pretty good, we don't appreciate how good it is. We listen to the rebellion, extinction loons. We, we think the world's going to hell in a handcart. And people just don't have that confidence anymore. And do you think that, that explains it?
1: Yeah, I think, I think personal experience and proximity to hardship is essentially what Creates a well-balanced person. I th- mm-hmm. I honestly think um, that the future we're going into is going to create human beings that our grandparents wouldn't recognize really as being human beings. They they won't have the same values. They won't have the same standards. It almost sounds like the last man. Nietzsche's the last yeah, man. Yeah. men without chests. Yeah, basically yes. It, it's it's I I they they're going to be insufferable. I mean look at look at the spoiled brats, the champagne socialists now. And they still exist in a world where someone might, you know, call them a Nazi in the street or something. But when you've got absolutely no hardship, you've never been punched in the face, you've never been roughed up in rugby, you've never you know, you everything is insulated, everything is you know, the 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 oppressive nanny state, then you're gonna get a, a generation of people who are unbelievably entitled and totally out of touch and won't know what to do if something bad were to happen. They'll just stand around. And I, I, I'm just looking at this thinking, it may well be that a part of the human character, as we understand it, is the requirement for hardship. And there was a there was a book written in, well, just a there's a book written in 1918 by um, Olaf Stapledon uh, called The Last and First Men, and it was a, a future history of humanity. And he kind of he he predicts this. He 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 suggests that in say you know a few hundred years time, um, there'll be uh, the the Earth will be essentially uh, urbanized, uh, but there will be areas that are kept as wilderness where young people at the age of, say, 18 will essentially be dumped in them with a knife and told, right, you've got two years. There's a gap year.
0: Well, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> you've got two
1: years, we're going to come back and get you, just to, to make sure that they're, they're in touch with the fact that they're actually That's why animals. It's is so
0: popular. Well, yeah. This is
1: what he does. Well, they, yeah, exactly. These things all appeal to a, a more sort of primal animalistic, because yeah. we are animals that evolved out of a very violent past. And, we, I mean, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but violence isn't always bad. You know, people love boxing. I've been watching
0: the World Cup Rugby, and I mean, it's, it's,
1: it's a fight. Yeah, exactly. People pay to watch it, people enjoy it, and they consent to it. You know, it's, it's without consent as, is when the as, violence is As a, as a is kid, bad.
0: some of my happiest memories were playing rugby. Because right. you're allowed to do stuff on right. the pitch that you would get sent to the headmaster yep. for <laughs> off it, the
1: pitch. Exactly. All, me and all my friends used to wrestle constantly. You know, we'd constantly have each other in headlocks and things like this. But it was all consensual. It was all understood that there were limits to it. We knew what the limits were and we were having and fun. And you learn what
0: the limits are as you go Exactly.
1: But, the, but now the mantra is, you know, violence is wrong. It's like, not always. You know, sometimes it is. In certain conditions it is. But it's it's this kind of matronly leveling of no this is just always the case and I see this even I mean even in my own wife who's not like you know one of these sort of progressive types she's a very regular woman um, where she she doesn't like seeing like my son and me fighting and roughhousing and stuff so no it's a part of what men do and, and men and boys do you know we, we fight and it's there there are lots of different aspects as to why this is necessary but it, it's also a bonding mechanism for young men, and if young men are basically essentially given, you know, some medication and told you've got to sit there and act like girls Then you end up with what Christina hoff Summers says, they're being treated as defective girls But yeah. I think that's that's causing part of the crisis of mental health that young men that we're having at the moment And it's probably one of the reasons that we end up with things like mass shootings from incels you know? do, you, do you think there's a connection between that?
0: Oh, absolutely. So you think there's a connection between some of the Mass shooting atrocities that have been in the states mm. and this sort of strangulated idea of masculinity. Yeah,
1: and I mean, I think um, I think people don't really understand why uh, anyone goes on a mass shooting, but I'm pretty sure it's to be heard. Uh, you'll notice that all of the alt right types have manifestos. You know, Elliot Rogers has a manifesto. They 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 do it because they're being ignored and they won't be heard by a culture that views them as essentially toxic. And so as a way of making sure that they are at least acknowledged to exist, they'll um, they'll get their herostratic fame, if, if nothing else, and they'll go and do something terrible. Because, I mean, often
0: these individuals responsible for mass shootings tend to have... Actually, weirdly, some of them have characteristics in common with, with, with terrorists. Oh. They tend to be male losers who haven't really succeeded at anything, perhaps think of themselves as being... 10 out of 10 but the world thinks of them as 2 out of 10. Right. And they're looking for some
1: recognition as you say. Well, I I they they're, they're not it's not necessarily about recognition for the sake of recognition. It's not an ego trip that they're looking for. Um, I think they they it's a cry for help frankly. I think these guys in a different life would probably have just committed suicide. And contrib- I mean, suicide is the number one cause of death.
0: Many of them are. That They're in effect committing well, suicide. Well, yeah,
1: exactly. They're, yeah, But this is a political suicide, you can yeah. call it. Um, but suicide is the number one cause of death for men under 45 because I, I do think that the concept of masculinity has been marginalised and that's bad for young men because young men need that to understand their own position in the world. I, I think this is one of the
0: reasons that explains the phenomenal success of Jordan Peterson in his book. Mm. Um, you know, he says that actually hardship is... A normal part of life. Yes. You're, you're not going to have an easy life. There will be yeah. challenges. There will be difficult things. There yeah. will be events that happen to you outside your yeah. control. And the best you can do is make a good job of it.
1: Yeah, and I'm not even sure it would be going back to the sort of uh, weird generation we'll end up seeing. I'm not even sure it's, it's a good thing to have a life without hardship and a life without struggle and suffering. It, it, character comes from adversity. That's a, it's an old truism for a reason. It. Mm-hmm. it makes you a more, uh, a better and more round, well-rounded person if you have to overcome something. If you're given everything on a plate, what value does it have?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, There's a, I, I just want to put a counter-argument. Sure, yeah. um, I go and talk at a lot of schools and universities, mm-hmm. and yes, I would acknowledge that there is, there is something in the analysis of a slightly precious generation who's entitled. But another way of looking at it is actually that young people today are... Gentler and kinder and nicer to each other than any previous generation. I generally find that people are much better mannered at that age than certainly I was when I was that age. Right. And yes, there may be a certain degree of groupthink, but that reflects the fact that you've got mass education. And if there's groupthink, it's because you've got a lot of universities. And the way to solve that is not to lament young people today, but actually make sure that you get a bit of intellectual diversity in. Universities, which is one of the reasons why I go and talk to universities. So I, I'm, I'm, so I'm just a little bit cautious about assuming
1: I, it's getting, getting worse. I, I think that it is getting worse. I think, uh, but I think what you're describing is um, a step on a road. Because I mean, where, if, it's, if it's like this now, where is it in 20 years time? Because if you've agreed that uh, rough housing is bad or, you know, being, being a boy effectively is bad, and the boys should become more conformable like the girls. Well, okay, that's that's from our position where we didn't grow up like that, but we think, oh, well, you know, maybe that would be better. But when those people grow up and they've had nothing but that opinion... And those people are teaching opinion, the next generation. Exactly. Then then any it, then, then the, the, the boundaries go closer in and it becomes more sensitive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at, at the moment, I said, it's, it's not an unacceptable state of affairs, even though it is... Genu- I mean, America is far worse than we are in this regard for the way that they treat their boys frankly um, but in the next generation then the generation after that how's it going to look mm. and I, I think it's going to get quite unnatural and i think the group think will get stronger because it's it is predicated on our acceptance of the principle that violence is always bad mm. and i don't i just don't think that's true yeah, i think that yeah. some of it is okay especially when it's consensual and i think that if we uh sort of like you know the sort of, well, I mean, usually it's it's okay. Everyone's much more polite and they're softer. And it's like, well, is that good? Do we want to breed soft people? These people are weak. This is why we need hate speech laws. This is why we need so much ever more structural, um, uh, just an ever more structural sort of enclosure around them. I, mean, I think a, pre- a previous things. generation
0: would have thought the idea that you need the state to use its monopoly on force. Yeah. To protect people's feelings, <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> insane. It's it, it, yeah. and not just it, not just um, from a sort of you know concern about tyranny either, but from concern about the own the, your own self possession, yeah, and self respect, self-res- yeah, yeah self respect. Um, I want to change that slightly mm-hmm. um, for a British audience. One
0: thing that I think has been absolutely extraordinary over the past two three years is the extent to which the establishment media is almost uniformly hostile to 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 Brexit. One yes. of the fallacies of the broadcast media today, Channel 4, the BBC, is that yes. a Leave voter is almost by definition, in their view, a thicker, a xenophobe, a gammon. a gammon. And, you know, anyone who opposes any deal that Brussels offers us is either mad or bad. Mm-hmm. Anyone who thinks that we shouldn't remain in a customs union with the EU is somehow beyond the pale and a xenophobe. Yeah. The idea that, you know, we might want democratic, national, self-determination like most countries around the world, and indeed most former British colonies now have, mm. the idea that we should have this for ourselves is, is somehow beyond the pale. Do, do, do you think they're going to have the most almighty hangover on November the 1st when we
1: leave? I, I like your optimism. Uh, I, I very much appreciate it. Um, I, I, I don't want to make any kind of predictions because we're in uncharted territory. You think we might remain? i i don't know I honestly don't know that 's the thing I, I can't I was hoping you would come and enlighten me I was hoping that <laughs> you'd be able to do the same to me because i mean it's to me that they're resisting a general election they've they've managed to trap the Conservatives as a minority government that the parliament is holding hostage uh, with the with the with the idea of putting in a caretaker prime minister so someone who has no legitimacy and and then overseeing. A kind of Vichy government of unity, national unity, yeah. to, to sell us out to a foreign power.
0: Yeah, I, I grew yeah. up in a country in 1980s Uganda that mm. was run by a succession of governments called national unity governments, where people in yeah. high office would literally set aside election results. Yeah. I never believed that that would be contemplated in Britain.
1: It's extraordinary. It, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, like you say, it, it sounds like third world dictatorship yeah. talk, yeah. you know, and.
0: A yeah, government of national unity which by is John Burke,
1: w- Yeah, which, which is a government of... The like one man
0: in the House of Commons who never faced a proper election yes, to get
1: there. But they're deliberately splitting away from the legitimate government. Yep. It's, I mean, the Conservatives, for all their faults, they did actually win in but 2017.
0: Any any muppet... I mean, clearly what's going yeah. on is a orchestrated Remain campaign, mm, mm. presumably well-funded. They've got a grid somewhere. Oh, we know they are. We know they they, they run a hatchet are. job on Boris. Mm. What they're trying to do, and I think this is their big mistake, they're trying to win this using rich lawyers in oh, the yeah. courts where their yeah. their buddies on the yeah. judicial benches who yeah. are basically lawyers and Whigs who are yeah. activists yeah. are doing everything they can to help. Yeah. But this is going to be settled not in the court of the Supreme Court, but in the Court of Public Opinion. And I, I yeah. think it's only
1: going to end up one way and it's not the, going
0: to be something that the Remainers like. I, I think they're going to get a real
1: sharp sharp shock when it comes to the next general election. I mean but Boris is the, the Conservatives are inching up to that magical forty percent number again. Uh, Boris personally is more popular than Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swenson combined. Mm. Um, he's doing the right thing. And every That's time every time they attack him, yeah. that they,
0: boy, they're throwing whatever they
1: can at him. Oh yeah. Him. I just I think, you know,
0: from the point of view of my former constituency Clacton, if they hear it, they'll think, Do you know what? Boris
1: yeah. is upsetting all all the all the right people. Hate him. I'm yeah. going to vote for him. And that's exactly it. and and you, the polling shows that people don't think this is Boris's fault at all. Mm-hmm. Guy, Guy Verhofstadt speaking at the Liberal Democrat conference would be no different to Hitler speaking to the Vichy government. It, 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 like this is. Isn't that slightly overstating it? No, I think that if David Lammy can call people Nazis, the ERG Nazis, and then say that's not strong enough, but no, shouldn't I shouldn't we let? I can do shouldn't that. we let them overstate their case? Shouldn't we I keep th- our language?
0: Moderate. know we, we don't want to be like David Lammy.
1: I think that by comparison our language has been excessively moderate. I having been I,
0: having been a former UKIP MP yes, I bet, yeah. look, at, look at some of my Twitter feeds and yeah, it, my, it, it's but, died down a bit now, but you know, I, I used to get an
1: enormous amount of abuse. But they are actually playing very dark constitutional games in order to overthrow a, a referendum. Mm-hmm. And that's that's that. I mean we we may as well just stop doing referendums in this country because a re- like, they don't seem to understand what a referendum is for. A referendum is to, to settle a question that needs to be settled. It, it's the decision, the direction. You've come to a fork in a road, and you, you need to choose a direction.
0: Should Wales have an assembly? Yeah. Should Scotland be independent? Yeah. Should Britain leave the European exactly.
1: Union? Exactly. And th- this is to settle a question. You know? And if the losers don't accept the, the result of that referendum, yeah. then there's no point having one in At, in, in, Scotland. In, in Scotland. I mean,
0: yeah. I, I'm not Scottish. I don't live there. I, I might be ethnically Scottish, but it's not my business as to whether or not yeah. Scotland's independent.
1: But yeah.
0: last time I checked, I was a free and fair vote there. Yeah. And yet people are agitating again.
1: Yeah, why are they still talking about it? You know, I mean, I, I thought that we were going to lose the Brexit referendum. I, I, I thought it would be 48 leave, 52 remain. And uh, and I, I was ready to say, okay, well, that was the result. I accept it. I think now that at least we've got a strong hand for reform, you know, for that argument or something like this. Um, but I was prepared to, you know, because, I mean, every time you cast a ballot, it's implicit in the fact that you're casting it that you're going to accept the result. Otherwise, why are you doing it? You know, why should anyone else do it? What the whole system collapses if you don't actually respect what the re- result of the referendum is.
0: Do you think that actually what we're seeing is that for years and years and years, our society, like most societies mm. in history, had a sort of politico-cultural intellectual elite up here, the masses down there. Mm. Um, what digital allows us to do is to see what it is the elites think mm. and to form our opinions independently. And what we're beginning to see with Brexit yeah. is actually part of a much, much bigger phenomenon. It's a fundamental shift in the relationship between the governed and the governing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They, the um, The media class are very well aware of um, their status as gatekeepers. Yeah, uh, They are the ones who control the flow of information to the public, at least as far as they were concerned. Which is why politicians
0: buddy-buddy up to them.
1: Which, of course, they've got no choice. And the way that the media operates, this gives the media... Um, the power to enact an ethical agenda. Uh, For example, the BBC recently, with the presenter who decided to call Donald Trump's tweets racist, uh, I don't want the opinions of BBC presenters. They've got a mandate to be impartial and objective, because they are paid for by the taxpayers. We have to pay this license, as far as I'm aware. So I don't want to hear the opinions of BBC presenters. But they've overturned this through pressure around the BBC, showing... That the BBC is not only incapable of standing up for their own uh, mandate, but they they're prepared to editorialise live on air. This is not acceptable. Mm. I don't need their opinions on this, um, and this is why people like myself I think are doing well. If we, I mean, I, that's what I do. You know, I, I editorialise all the time, but I'm am an independent well, uh, self. I was going to say maybe 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 the other
0: option is to actually say BBC staff can editorialise, Privatise but but <laughs> yeah. for every for every. Guardian Easter opinion. Mm. You're going to have a slightly more Foxy Newsy opinion.
1: Well, I mean, it would be a it would be a halfway house to the to the solution of the problem, which is the fact that they think that they control they they still think they control the flow of information, and they're aware of the fact that that means that they can enact an editorial agenda. And th- th- it's very subtle. I mean, look at the um, look at the Yellow Vest protests in France at the moment. Most people have no idea that's going on because the the Political agenda is enacted through editorial policy. They just don't report. They've got
0: a narrative which is fictional And if facts come along that don't fit the
1: narrative the fiction They just ignore it. It's actually it's more insidious than that. It's not that they're saying untrue things It's just they leave out other true Mm. things through this editorial policy that people need to know to put the The information they've been given in full context essentially the entire thing is a lie by omission Mm. Um, And this is something that social media has broken Mm-hmm. And you can tell that this bothers the journalistic class. Yeah. They get when I you know think. when the chaps outside are calling people Nazis and things like that. They don't like it,
0: and they complain bitterly about they people do. attacking them in Absolutely. their Twitter feed. Absolutely, um, you know they should try, 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 try,
1: try being a. Member of Parliament. (laughs) I can't imagine why any single MP wants a Twitter account. I I would have thought that you would expect nothing but abuse. But, as always, the the narrative on this is completely backwards. The idea that, (laughs) oh, Labour women, they get it the worst. Actually, they get it the best. It's conservative men who get the worst worst abuse on Twitter. This was a study done by the University of Sheffield that's still ongoing. And not only do conservative men get the most of it, the, the abuse they get is of worst tenor. The, the, is that the, right? Absolutely, that's what they say. Um, and which survey is this? There's a survey done. Uh, it's an ongoing survey, but it started in 2015 and it's still going. I can send you. I'll link put it. it I'd love to yeah. put a link on. There, uh, yeah, I'll think. send it to you. Um, where they found that the the abuse that the Labour MP MPs got was milder, as well. So
0: one thing I found very interesting a few days ago, there was some journalist belly aching on Twitter because yeah. I think uh, neither Corbyn nor Johnson yeah. Boris had had done the today program or channel 4 Mm. and first of all why why would they want to do either of those shows none of them matter to the swing voters that they need to win over to win a general election Mm. but secondly yeah I'm, i'm not a fan of corbyn but corbyn's not going to get a fair hearing on that show no um boris who i am a huge fan of he's not going to get a fair hearing on that show so i just sort of thought to myself why why would they bother but why would a journalist whose job is to understand politics think that there's anything unusual about being ignored I mean they're eminently ignorable they've made themselves essentially relevant to the political process and I, I look forward to the next election partly because yeah. I think we're going to see politics conducted directly with the people without the journalist intervention
1: honestly I'm not I'm not sure whether that's good or bad uh, but I think it might be inevitable <laughs> yeah it's exciting yeah yeah it's definitely an interesting would you play a role in that I mean would you if you've got Two
0: million people watching your channel a week. Mm. By then, um, would you would you do what I think Russell
1: Brand has done and, and interview candidates? Yeah, absolutely, I would. Yeah, um, the so it's a, you know it's a, the 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 professional journalistic class are an interesting bunch um, because there are studies that suggest that journalists essentially live a really high octane lifestyle. Uh, they're constantly doing coke. Um, they're constantly out drinking and socialising when they're not. Obviously, at the work. And you saw this um, the, the the other day. There was. Um, Do you think this is all true? Absolutely, oh, absolutely. I've met them and I've gone drinking and whatnot not with them. Um, it's it, it's definitely true. These and studies show that they've got less cognitive function than regular people because of this high octane lifestyle. I'm not kidding. I'll send you this across. I've
0: met a lot of journalists in Westminster who uh, they plod along. Yeah, um, like they get many to people, go in drinking
1: and partying. They get all of the insider gossip, they're, they're part of a clique. One of the things that people should look out for, uh, when, when thinking about the sort of um, meta context of journalism, and this is not just in this country, it's generally, think about the uniformity of articles. You'll see like one, say you know, Buzzfeed will publish something, or whoever will publish something, and then you'll see five other progressive outlets that have all got the same basic political philosophy, all publish practically the same article you know? within the same day and it looks yeah. like a conspiracy, but it's not. It's dog-whistling. Yeah. They do you don't know, need to conspire. You know,
0: in, I think, 2009, mm. as a relatively new MP, mm-hmm. I first came into the limelight when I tabled a motion to oust the then-Common Speaker. Yeah. And for about a week, I was in the centre of a media storm. I tabled a motion in the House of yeah. Commons, It, it, it had, you know, headline news, yeah. front billing on the 10 o'clock news, all the rest of it. And the thing that really struck me about it is that I would spend all day going from one studio to the next, facing the same dorky questions yes, and yeah. giving the same answer. And I thought to myself, yeah. oh, you, you're only saying this because you're on Sky News down here. Yeah. You've seen me do this interview with the BBC upstairs and you're trying to replicate yeah. what they're broadcasting. Why, why don't you ask me something different? Yeah. And, and literally I would spend the entire day Saying the same thing
1: again and again and again, it was extraordinary. It, and it, it just feeds into the reason why we wouldn't need the journalists if we just have our social media statements. Yeah. Boris can just put out a statement, and then they can all just wrap. This is exactly what I learned to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. What I learned exactly. To do. There's no reason not to. Yeah. Where's the incentive not to do it? Yeah. Because the journalists are not inquiring. They're setting a narrative. They're trying to frame. This is the framing, and we all agree with this yeah. because this is the this is what we're gatekeeping against. We don't want you talking mm. about, say, mass immigration, or you know. Uh, the the police covering up crimes things like this we don't want to talk about those things because they're uncomfortable they they start getting us out you know they put people out of their comfort zone of doing they things. don't want
0: to be the person in the office who's having to explain to their editor or their producer why they haven't got what the other media teams got yeah yeah
1: so absolutely.
0: you know if if you've got the same mm-hmm. facile observations. You're safe.
1: Yeah, yeah. but they're, they're always the same facile observations. Yeah. You know, it's not. I mean, even if it was just unique facile observations, I'd yeah. be happy with that. That would at least show a diversity of thought in the press class. But there isn't one. Mm. Um, it's genuinely. Uh, th- this is why. The, do you remember the Ben Shapiro interview with Andrew uh, O'Neill? Andrew O'Neill. Andrew yeah, Neill, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, ben Shapiro accused him of being a leftist. And Andrew Neal's, ha, 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 that's so silly. But it's like, but Andrew, you're asking him leftist questions. You didn't even think about this. Like, you tweeted 12 years ago something about this. What what are you doing, Andrew? Well, do you know what I found
0: extraordinary about that interview? Ben had apparently written an article saying instances where in my past I've got things wrong. Yeah. And Andrew Neal's producer or researcher had presumably cut and pasted this. And so they were telling Ben back what Ben had already said had yeah. been things that he had got wrong. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was utterly facile.
1: But it looked like leftist gotcha journalism. It was. You know, it oh, was. you tweeted... In and do you know
0: what was really fast. funny? Everyone said, ah, what Ben doesn't understand about British politics is that Andrew Neil is the best. Well, maybe he is. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, and another thing is that people who usually hate Andrew Neil suddenly praising him for owning Ben Shapiro. It's like uh, I thought he was an evil conservative. Owen Jones is suddenly on his side. What's going on? I I, I
0: I watched that interview mm. and I I thought to myself, it, it's. People are taking away the long, wrong lesson. It was totally. like, like when totally. Nigel Farage and Nick Clegg had that head-to-head debate. Oh, about the army? Uh, no, no, it was, oh. a, it was a debate. Nick oh, right, Clegg right, right, challenged right. Nigel Farage for right. a debate over right. Europe, right. and they, they did a head-to-head. And all the pundits in mm. Westminster said, ah, Nick Clegg showed him. And then you saw this spike in the polls for Farage. For, for Farage. Yeah. And I, I saw exactly the same thing. Everyone was saying, you know, Ben came off worse, Andrew Neil really got him. But actually, I thought, do you know I don't what? I think so. There's a new, and yeah. you know, if if I was talking to Ben Shapiro now, a bit like when I was talking to yeah. you, I you know, I, I would have asked him question number one: Why are you so popular? I'm not. I didn't ask you now at the beginning of the show to suck up to you. It's a you know, why yeah. is it that more people are watching you than Andrew Neil every week? I, I think I think the public needs to be
1: aware of this <laughs> no, and talk about yeah, it. I don't know. You know. Are, there, are more people watching you than um, Andrew Neil? Well, I mean, it, not yet. Well, I don't I don't know how many figures I guess, but. Um, yeah. I and the the viewing figures of your channel change essentially with the amount of content you put out. Yeah. Um, but I mean, when I was on my campaign trail, I was getting ten million views a month on my main channel. I've just started a new one, uh, and I've it's been three weeks and I've got three and a half million views. Three and a half month. million views. Yeah, on a wow. brand new channel in three weeks. So wow. it's. I mean, the demand's there. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what their viewing figures are, but uh, yeah. mine are pretty good. So that's I'm, that's I'm fantastic. Not, I'm not disappointed at all.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of things. First of all. Um, Free speech. Yes. We, we've talked about how the mainstream media just doesn't allow dissenting opinions.
1: Um, well, the, some, sometimes they do, but it's always in a very very carefully stage-managed production where there are lots of other people who are going to shout them down and an audience to back up that shouting down. And, yeah, I mean, mm.
0: I used to get a cameo appearance right. on a panel yeah, as know, yeah. the right-wing Eurosceptic right. guy. Um, and, yeah. Um, but new media ought to allow and can allow... Um, Diversity of opinion and expression. Yeah. You've you've had a couple of run-ins with with some of the new media platforms. And yes. do you know anything about Jordan
1: Peterson's ThinkSpot? Uh, I'm on the I'm on, I'm in the queue to use it. I'm not. Uh, I'm Me not, too, actually. i send yeah, sent yeah, off my email. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, but, I'm I'm waiting to I'm waiting to have access. I don't know too much about it beyond that, though, okay. because uh, I'm just waiting to use it like yeah. everyone else. Um, but it, what what it um. What is it we want to know about the, the new media platform or the extent of free speech on them?
0: Yeah. I and mean, it's kind of I, dire. I, I <laughs> do you think I I was told by everyone you'll be demonetized, you'll be demonetised. Yeah. And I have been demonetized. Maybe I'm just a sort of wet lefty um, you know, um, woke um, That's what everyone says.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Douglas Carswell, typical wet lefty, yeah. yeah.
0: But the few times that I have been demonetized, I've gone back and I've looked at it and I thought to myself, do you know, actually uh, maybe maybe I wouldn't be happy with my family seeing that sentence I wrote there it's a little bit angry or or actually uh, maybe I use a a, a bit of a rude word there and edit it out and I've always appealed and always been re-monetized is 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 there too much hype over demonetization do you think actually it's sensible to have in place a mechanism that just means people tone it down a little bit something that they don't do
1: on twitter well, that's the question, isn't it? But then we come back to the kind of feminization of society. Is it wrong to have passions? Is it wrong to to speak in in in, in an impassioned way about a subject that, which you deeply care? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. It depends on the circumstance. But I think one thing that people forget is that no one forces you to watch uh, new media. So true. You click it. You choose to go and find that thing. Uh, that's not. It's not broadcast on your television. You d- you're not just leaving it running and then it. It comes on without your consent. You had to go and find that thing, and you can always click away anytime you like when you don't like it. You're in complete control of how you consume that media, unlike with old media, actually. You're not entirely in control. You might be sat in a, an airport lounge, and mm. you know something's on, and you've got no control over this. So it's, it's not the same beast, and I think that allowances need to be made for people being frustrated because i think there's a lot of reason to be frustrated with politics at the moment and the the general atmosphere in which we find ourselves and it's not fair to say well You now need to be held to the standards of a sort of Westminster official meeting when you're making your content in your front room. Mm. It's not the same place. It's not the same environment. And it's unfair to treat them to the same standards. And often it's by people who don't have that kind of training and eloquence and understanding of the the social environment that is now starting to pay attention to them because of the numbers they're starting to get. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The alt-right,
0: you've said very loudly and very firmly, you're not anything yeah. to do with the ultra-right. I mean, I, I look at some of the people in the so-called ultra-right, fortunately it seems to be fading slightly, yeah, yeah, and right. I actually think they're very harmful. I think they, okay. give, they are basically an inverse version of the, the political correct. And yeah. you know, anyone who defines themselves primarily by their ethnicity or their gender, yeah. I, I think is undermining the idea of a free society.
1: Completely. I think that you should identify on an individual basis. The Martin Luther King idea. You yeah. judge a man on the content of his character, not the colour of his skin. It's the only thing you have yeah. control over. Yeah, <laughs> You know, you yeah. get to decide what kind of person you're going to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the alt-right um, are irrelevant at this point. They, Honestly, I think that they're going to be responsible for more terrorism because they're going to be listened to because at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, um, the, the they, they represent um, a th- the, the sort of third great movement out of the Enlightenment. So you, you've got the sort of Liberals, that is a position that I'm very firm that I represent with what I do. Then you've got the the Communists, and then you have the Fascists. And the reason that these exist is to cater to human desires. Uh, The Liberals are the human desire for self-autonomy and uh, freedom. The the Communists for uh, sort of fairness, I would say, is probably the driving motive. And the Fascists is the driving motive for order and safety. And there are people who feel like that we're losing the order and safety of our society. And looking at the crimes in London, I mean, London's a scary place now. Do you think so? Oh, yes. Is crime not lower now than it was 20 years ago? There's suddenly got more than New York, hasn't it?
0: Well, that's because New York come down too.
1: Well that's true, but I'm not saying It's spiked that, I'm, in I'm the not, past I, couple of years. I'm, I'm not yeah, it definitely has spiked in the past it's couple of years. What? But it's since not,
0: since Colin got in, it's gone it, up. It, it's, it's
1: not just crime overall, it's violent crime. Yeah. That's the problem. You know, I mean burglaries up is not so scary. Um, there are lots of I mean, I, I saw a video yesterday of a police officer watching two Muslim women fighting. And then a Muslim man comes along with a knife and five jabs in her neck and under her arm, kills her in London, and the cop is standing next to the guy with the knife as they both look at her body on the floor. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Again, I'll send you a link to this as well. It's genuinely horrific to watch. Uh, you don't see a drop of blood, but you know what's happening. You know. And, and was this recently? Yesterday. A murder in London yesterday? I will send you the link. I'll send you the link. It's not reported. This is the editorial gatekeeping. It's not reported because it's an ethnic minority, and but the cop is standing there. in the video. You can see him. The cop is standing there doing nothing. The guy's still holding the and it's knife. It's not fake news. It's it's authentic. It's, it's someone with a cell phone camera, and it's 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 worrying where things are going. Mm. Even though in general life crime may well be down, mm. there are areas where you know if you were mm. to localize where the crime's happening, suddenly it becomes. You're right. Actually, I was looking terrifying. at
0: a, a, a map of knife crime in London, yeah. and the dark shaded area that I live in I remember thinking gee um I wish I was on the other side of that boundary right um, I've got a you know you just you just have that natural feeling of right. it's a little bit too
1: close for comfort exactly but and the, the thing that this is addressing is the 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 qualitative nature of our society because it took us a long time to become a high trust society and understanding that you know we there there is a certain set of rules and we're all going to obey these rules and so Whenever you bump into someone on the street, you're pretty sure they're not just going to attack you. You, know, you, 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 can, you have a reasonable expectation of the kind of behavior you're going to expect. And that produces societies that are trusting. And th- this, this has been something that foreigners remark on. I mean, Carol Chapek in his letters from England, one of the things he says is in England, there's a magical word called private. And this word does all of the work of all of the fences and boundaries and gates that the continent has. It's fact,
0: I remember when I was a child, growing up in Uganda and I came to the UK and I saw these little lawns with a little fence yeah. about that high. And I thought, in Uganda, <laughs> that who's that stopping? No. But in England, it's that little yeah. wicker fence painted white.
1: Yep. It, it's, you, you, just, you don't cross it. it just because. Because you know that if you had a little fence, you wouldn't want it, someone else crossing it, yeah. yours. Yeah. And so that, that, that little sign, as Carol Chapek said, private, does the world of good and it does all the work. Because we all respect it. It's about a common understanding that property rights happen in other people's heads, not your own. And you have to be a part of that. You have to be a part of that culture as well. And I don't think that that's something that's going to survive in London. I think that that culture is something that's going to survive in places like Durham and Cornwall. You know, that's the, the, we are moving out of a high-trust society because of mass immigration from societies that are not high-trust societies.
0: Presumably it's not just the UK. I mean, Japan is, a, I mean, I think, I'm right to say Francis Fukuyama wrote a book about high, in effect high-trust yes. societies. And Denmark has been a very high-trust yeah. society. Japan has been a very high-trust yeah. society. Presumably the consequences of importing large numbers of people from a fairly conservative with a small c agrarian rural background, planting them in modern Denmark or modern London or modern Japan
1: has, has a similar effect. It... I think it just depends on the social values of the cultures they come from, because like we covered earlier, not all cultures are the same. Yeah. Um, I've got no doubt that if you were to bring in millions of Japanese people, you'd get very low impact on the, the damage to the social fabric of the country. Um, but if you have, because con- uh, uh, they're high-trust societies, but if, if you have countries that are not and routinely encourage women to cover themselves from head to toe, because and the, the meme that they always share is a lollipop covered in ants and one that's wrapped up that's not covered in ants, both on the floor, and say, well, that's why you, that's why you cover yourself up, ladies. But uh, Men are not ants. (laughs) Well, well, that's exactly the point. That's completely taking the burden of responsibility off the men themselves. But it's also saying that the small picket fence won't do. You need a giant, gated, uh, uh, barbed-wired... I I
0: gather in a country like Nigeria, Lagos, people will actually paint on their houses, this house is not for sale, because there's such a lack of respect for property rights and such a sort of low-trust society that there have been instances where someone will go away for a few days and a con artist will have broken into their house and sold it to someone. It's, yeah. you know, extraordinary.
1: Sort of and the, the, this, um, it's also, I, I've got friends in Eastern Europe who grew up in the communist regime, and they, they say something uh, quite similar. They, they know they're a low-trust society. They know they are, because the, the trust was meant to be had not with one another, but with the state. Mm-hmm. And so, effectively, anyone who approaches them on the street, they think, is going to try and swindle them in some way, to try and okay. get money out of them. Um, they, they they don't trust one another, whereas if I get stopped by, say, one of the Extinction Rebellion protesters, I don't think they're going to try and swindle me. I know they're not going to try and swindle me. I know they're going to try and sell me some mumbo-jumbo about how we're all going to die in five years. but I don't think they're going to try and take my money. Now, to the viewers
0: I should, or the listeners I should explain, um, they can probably hear it, there is a, a very noisy, yes. if not actually that big, Extinction Rebellion protest. Um, Let's talk a little bit, just finish off by talking a little bit about the Extinction Rebellion. I mean, yes. I was struck by how many of them are just, actually quite a few of them look to be sort of fairly well-meaning, elderly, yeah. upper-middle-class people from the home counties yeah. who presumably come to London for a, yeah. to bang a few drums. and say. Do you, I looked at some of these people on the way into work this morning, and I thought, a generation ago, they would have been in church, yeah. and they yeah. would have been worshipping, not gear the earth, they would have been yeah. worshipping God. Um, they would have redeemed themselves by raising money for orphanages. Now they're redeeming themselves by demanding we stop flying. Yep. Do you look at them and think, actually, that they are people desperately in need of an organized religion, so they've created one? Yes,
1: I think that there's... It's, it's not just an organized religion, either. I mean, I don't think it's... They coinc- even have a logo
0: with a cross on it, almost.
1: <laughs> I, don't a, I don't think it's a coincidence that the three great Abrahamic religions are apocalyptic. Mm. I think that people like to think that there's going to be a great accounting and end times. And, uh, and self-sacrifice is something they can do to ameliorate that or escape it. Um, Restore the equilibrium of the pristine past. Yeah, but it requires self-sacrifice, I think. And that's, uh, you know, chaining themselves, you know, to, to whatever um, is a very middle-class version of self-sacrifice. But they, they, but I remember seeing some Salvation
0: Army mm. worshippers in Kenya as a boy... Mm-hmm. And they had flags with crosses on and they banged drums noisily in the streets. Very similar. And they're
1: very that. similar to yeah. the, what we've got outside. I, I do think it's the same motivation. But the thing is I've, I've spoken to a few of them at these protests. They're all lovely people. They're very well meaning, aren't they? They're very, very well mannered. They don't shout they don't think that you're the problem. You know, they, they just explain their position. You say, okay, well that's kooky. Uh, but they're not they're not bad. It, yeah. They're just inconvenient. I, I was I
0: was actually pleasantly surprised. Um there weren't any of the menacing undertones that you get yeah. from the sort of the, the, the yes. far left. And yeah, the, I was black expecting block. it
1: to be yeah. honest. I, I and that's why I was like genuinely surprised. They, they, they I slightly worried that the black block lot might and yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was expecting yeah. actually. But I, I've been looking into them recently, and I haven't seen any particular evidence other than a few tweets about capitalism that uh, that make me think that they're actually being subverted by communists. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not too concerned about it. I, honestly, they seem like people's grandparents who think, oh God, my grandkids are going to end up dying in a in a hellish inferno, um, so we have to do something. You know, um, which is very well meaning, and honestly, I think David Attenborough spawned most of this. I'm watching interviews; they keep going on about his program, climate change, and how mm-hmm. it's the, the yeah. new, the new. Um, it gives meaning to that, that. I mean, I
0: yeah. I joined Friends yeah. of the Earth when yeah. I was a teenager, and I yeah. would never do it now. I mean, I I joined Friends of the Earth because I was concerned about things like mountain gorillas and and, and mm-hmm. conservation in rivers yeah. and lakes, yeah. and um, you know, and this obsession with CO two. Very final question, if I may. You actually. Your 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 sort of um, YouTube name, your nom de plume, is 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 Sargon of Akkad. Yes.
1: Why are you named after a, 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 an Iraqi emperor? Uh, it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> uh, I I had no intention of doing anything like this. Uh, I don't have any kind of background in it or anything. I was a I was a I was a dork. Uh, I, 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 a gamer. I, yeah, I was a gamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it. Me and my friends just happened to enjoy the culture of ancient Mesopotamia. I found it fascinating, and so we, we all used to have um, different emperors as our screen names in video games, and people, people forget that, like, you know, in the early 2000s you didn't, the, the internet was new and potentially dangerous, and so you didn't necessarily put your name out yeah. there because you didn't know who would get it or, you know, it was all unknown. Uh, unlike millennials now where, you know, everyone uses their real name for everything and they're, they're taught to do so because it's a way of kind of normalizing the Internet in their generation. But in my generation, it wasn't that. So you d- you used a... a you would a have a handle. Yeah, a handle, yeah. And and for convenience, you would just use that on every site. Yeah. So you had the same name, same handle, so you didn't have to remember different logins. Um, and I didn't think about it when I first uploaded videos in 2013. I, I, di- I didn't think anyone was going to watch it. I, I thought maybe, you know, 100... 100- <laughs> A hundred people would watch it and you know, I'd I'd have got what the, the thing that was bothering me off my chest and I'd have got on with the rest of my life, you know. Um I and and now here we are. So I'm, I'm kinda of stuck. I would have used my real name if I'd known.
0: <laughs> well, it's been fantastic Thank having you coming in. Thank you very much. Um My pleasure. Real-